Hi, and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sareka Thanendra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less-than-transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside. Because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers, as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Today's guest is writer, activist, and educator Preeti Taneja, whose debut novel, We That Are Young, won the Desmond Elliott Prize and the Eastern Eye Award for Literature in the UK. Preeti is also editor-in-chief of Visual Verse, a beautifully curated online anthology of art and words that accepts submissions from writers of all levels and backgrounds in a collaborative format. Aftermath, the book we speak about today, is part of the Transit Books Undelivered Lectures series in the US and is published by And Other Stories in the UK. In November of 2019, Usman Khan, who was convicted of terrorism-related charges at the age of 20, was released eight years later to attend an event celebrating the fifth anniversary of a prison education program he participated in. Preeti Thaneja taught fiction writing in prison for three years and had taught Khan for a total of 20 hours during that time. Aftermath, Preeti writes, is a trust narrative. Quoting Octavia Paz, she says, I'm living at the centre of a wound still fresh. A searching lament to rebuild trust in the outside world, in the language of trauma and terror, and in the systems and processes that failed. Max Porter calls Aftermath a major landmark in British narrative non-fiction. He says it's a beautiful and profound account of creative writing teaching as a radical act of trust and interrogation of power. Its anti-racist and abolitionist stance makes it a vitally important and deeply moving book to read now in these dismal days for the British political project. It is fearless in the way it shows its agonised workings as it unfolds into a complex map of grief. I'm always grateful to the guests that give their time to this podcast, but especially grateful for Preeti. As you will hear, speaking about the book and the topics we get into is not a light ask of a guest. Hi, Preeti. Welcome to Make It Make Sense. Hi, Sareka. Thank you for having me. Um, before we dive into our conversation, I wanted to start by asking a question that I ask all my guests, which is, what did you want to be when you were younger? I wanted to be a writer. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, my mother was a very, she was a cookery writer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was a very early British, she came from the, she came from India and then she was a very um, talented chef. And so my early experience of her was that she was sitting in a study working on manuscripts for books. Oh, wow. And um, I think when I was a very, very small child, she went into hospital um, for some surgery. I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. But I made her a little tiny book called My Book. It's, it's very, very small. It's about the size of a little finger. And it had papers and a whole story. 
So nice. The reason I ask that is because I think people that come from backgrounds like ours um, often are told different things and it's not the same of everyone, but uh, definitely for me it wasn't something that I thought was a possibility and so it's just nice to hear that that was your also within your culture, your your family setting, that it's something you saw in your mum and that that was um, imbued in you, I guess, from young. Yeah, I mean, definitely writing and reading was a massive, massive part of my childhood. Books mm-hmm. were the highest form of culture in our house and they were, you know, rewards for anything. You, you did well at school, you, you got to go and buy a book. Yeah. You know, you clean your room, you get to get a book, <laughs> yeah. get to like reading time. So it was really kind of in, in our lives. But, you know, the idea that one can be a writer um, changes over time. And I think even... I think there was a dichotomy between what I believed from my home life and then finding my way into being actually published. Because mm. mm. that, that that's a different set of possibilities and a different <laughs> realisation that can I do this. Yes, true. Um, now, I want to say thank you because I know that the book we're speaking about today, Aftermath, is something that you're very considered in regards to who you speak about it with. And um, I just want to say thank you off the bat for saying yes to this because I really appreciate you um, walking through it with me today. Thank um, you for walking through it with me because I think asking people to read this book and engage with it is to come with me on this journey that... Yeah. It's quite difficult for lots of us and that's one of the reasons why I think I wanted to do the book in the first place because mm-hmm. someone it's like walking through a kind of underworld and um, if we don't do that together then we can't survive it. Mm, it's true. Um, now the book uh, I had made a error, a thoughtless or a lazy error when we were first chatting and I had referenced it as a novel, which it very clearly isn't. Um, And when I was thinking about what it is, it is a series of essays, it's part memoir. Um, There's a very uh, important quote from Max Porter where he says that aftermath is a major landmark in British narrative nonfiction. And I mean, that's super powerful and I know it's also important to you. Would you like to speak about why it is so important to you that um, that is what he's quoted? Yeah, I think reception is um, important for any nov- any writer. I started off as a novelist and this mm-hmm. is a creative nonfiction, I guess. My writing, um, my short stories and prose poetry and so on, like the word uncategorizable has been used about <laughs> aftermath mm-hmm. and people's response critically has been like this form doesn't yet exist but clearly it exists because I've made it you know mm-hmm. um and if the recognition I'm getting for the book from writers I respect and admire like Max Porter, Nika Shukler, Mona Arshi so many people have been so kind about responding to the experiments in this book because this was such an unprecedented and singular event that I'm writing about my position within it um, was very unusual mm-hmm. um, even though lots of us who teach in prison or taught in prison know, knew both the perpetrator of the attack and knew the victims um, in some way I was the writer and so for me 
to think through it through the lens of literature was really important and formal experimentation and craft manual almost mm. of mm. how to do this piece of work. And there are loads of people who are recognizing that in the in the literary world. And then there are the readers the book has found who have started writing to me to talk about their own trauma and their own relationship to prison and violence in different ways in different parts of the world. Mm. It's really extraordinary um, to be on the receiving end of some letters and emails and DMs on Twitter where people are saying, thank you for making space for talking about these difficult things in the way that you have. Um, I, I live in Newcastle, which isn't that far from Manchester. So many people have kind of, encountered who had proximity to Manchester attacks and Mm. have no words to talk about how to think through complex grief, culpability, um, however distance or near they were to events, people whose children are in prison, brothers, sisters. And I think what it's revealing to me is that we need to make space in our society for to talk about the violence that prison perpetrates on thousands and thousands of people's lives, not just mm-hmm. those who are incarcerated, mm-hmm. and the raci- racism in the criminal justice system, and stop it, and all the ways the connecting points happen. You know, it's hard to do this piece of work when you've got this kind of flooding of terror in your mind that this one singular event mm. seems like so outsider, so extraordinary. How can you even begin to put context around this? It's outrageous. Mm-hmm. And that sense of outrage is what I've also had from more mainstream media um, when I've gone into interviews um, with some of those outlets. Or a decision not to speak about the book at all, as if it's so unspeakable, it should not be reviewed, it should not be talked about in any way just to ignore it and like curate it out of culture and it will just do its own thing. So it's very weird. It's like these, this balance of two things where either it's completely ignored or, or, or I'm met with a kind of how dare you. Mm. Mm. Or people are just very, very generous and grieving together. Mm-hmm. That's something in our society which is only becoming more obvious that there that we do have a problem with racism in this country that's so deeply structural. Mm-hmm. It's so Islamophobic. It's so extraordinarily touches on something inside people. And yet it's being silenced and, and curated out of public life. And you know, even today we've had these kind of reports of a document that's been released saying that the government wants to make immigration harder for... <laughs> black and brown people and this like secret report is curating our society and yet you know can we talk about that in context in the context of this singular event that I'm doing and I'm Mm. looking at in aftermath I think we need to Mm -hmm. so I'm going to do that work because I was in the room Mm. and there are people who are in power in major media organizations that don't want to have that conversation they certainly don't want brown women to have that conversation because I really do feel like If I know so many people who teach in prison, Mm -hmm. do arts work in prisons and give their time and energy to try to make restorative justice, not to improve the prison system, but to make life more bearable. I wonder if another writer from a different racial background 
many of whom are award-winning like I am, had done a piece of work like this, their trauma would have been treated as outrageous. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but I have a feeling I do. Mm-hmm. So. It is it is interesting. I mean, to touch on a few things there, that that's I guess what you do with aftermath is that you start with the event, but then you give us context. You fill us with context as to historical context of other events that's happened in the world. And I think in contrast to what you're saying, where there's media that tries to not speak about things that are happening, then you're right, that terror, when you don't speak about it, when you don't read context or know context as a whole and you just look at things as events and then the terror builds up inside of you, I guess that's also what you're saying in that that's why it's important for you to have written it and for you to write it from your context as well because you can draw on so many things. Um, that was one of the things that I wasn't expecting in reading Aftermath. I um, went in with an assumption that it would be about the event, but it was really interesting and very educational for me to have everything um, kind of supporting uh, the processes and the breakdowns and the failures that led to um, events and other events as well. Um Thank you for saying that. You know, I mean, it was a very, very strange time to write a book like this in. Lots of creative decisions came out of constraints because obviously this happened at the end of November 2019. And we didn't know what was coming because, you know, we're just members of the public. But three months later, the whole country, in fact, the world was in a lockdown Mm. from a pandemic. So what do you do when you Mm. when you're grieving and you're shocked and full of these questions of doubt of who did who could I have trusted who should I what should I have known better about you know did I do all I what did I perceive about this where lots of noise was happening Mm -hmm. and how can I put my how can I lay this to rest in a way that makes sense to me and move forward as a writer as a teacher as someone who cares deeply about social justice and racial equality um you know as somebody who was born in this country second generation um you know doing that work in lockdown and I had moved house to an unfamiliar city um didn't know anybody everything was closed so it was a really extraordinary kind of circumstances to produce work Mm. and I actually think that kind of intensity around me that silence around me really helped Mm -hmm. to allow me to think about nothing but this quite deeply and draw on the reading I needed to do Mm-hmm. You know, even while I was teaching full time online for my job and trying to settle into a flat with boxes of stuff and all the rest of it, mm. that's interesting. That that helped you. That um, kind of isolation of lockdown and the I guess it 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 brings a different sort of focus, doesn't it? When everything is changing, but there's something that you're sitting down to write and to kind of make sense of. Yeah, I mean. When people die, no matter what our relationship with them is, I think one of the um, very common feelings of that shock and grief is that how come the world is carrying on mm. as normal? But in this instance, you know, like I was with Jack yeah. Merritt the day before he died in Whitemore Prison and we were working together. And then everything stopped. Mm. So for me, the lockdown obviously felt extremely 
um, external version of what I was feeling inside. Wow. It was very weird. It was like, and because I had moved, I feel like I described it to myself as being like exiled (laughs) and locked down. Yes. From everything. And also from myself and from language, something that, you know, I think we're going to talk about later on. Yeah. I mean, that yeah, that was my next question. So the structure and form we've spoke about a little bit, but you also use um, different ways to really help slow and shift the reader through the book. And um, there's spaces between words and there's hanging paragraphs and you play with the narrator. Um, there's a line in the book uh, which says, trauma cannot be written or survived in the first person singular. Um, which makes sense, and it made so much sense when I uh, read or heard you say that you also lost in that moment trust in language to adequately express what you had wanted to express. Was the way that you wrote, was it intentional from the beginning? Did it come right from the start? How did the process go from, I know you started with some notes on grief and that that then progressed on. Could you share how it developed? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, for me, um, there's always a sort of question in my own mind about the ethics of doing the work I want to do and how Mm. to do it. Mm -hmm. So how to do it is really important and how to do it in a way that feels true to the knowledge that this wasn't about me really at all. Um, It's about Jack's family and Saskia's family and the people who were shocked and um, lost on that day and Muslim communities who are going to fear the brunt of the political comeback and prison and so on. And so they, there were so many ways in which grief was disseminated from a core through a city, Cambridge, where I then lived. Um, Jack worked in Cambridge, Saskia was educated there. They both had friends, pockets mm. of colleagues in different pubs and <laughs> punts and things like that. <laughs> So there was like this ripple effect, you know, mm. and I was very aware that I didn't want to write a book about me. I wanted to write something that allowed, that took the parts of craft that felt more like tessellation. And, um, you know, maybe because I come from a South Asian background and I'm always thinking with what might sound dry post-colonial theory, but it's very political. Mm-hmm. And it gives us an aesthetic, some of it gives us an aesthetics like the work of Edouard Glissant and others to think about narrative in ways that are collective. Mm. And that's what I wanted to do because this was a collective grief and it was mm. a very complex grief. And from my perspective with South Asian roots in partition, where I end up being, you know, a professor of world literature and creative writing and teaching in prison to a population, a prison population that's majority Black and South Asian in our prisons in the UK. Mm-hmm. That I have to think through. It's a very complex norm and it has its roots in partition, which is a collective grief. Mm-hmm. I mean, in our families, in our histories, I've heard this over and over, I can't talk about this because it happened to everybody. Mm. And everybody had something bad happen to them. So I'm kind of very sensitive to how to both own the own the trauma that I experienced specifically, but find a way to, to connect it with the wider and more complex structural traumas which create that individualist mm-hmm. pain, senses of pain. Does that make sense? Like mm. For the yes. narrative. Yes, yeah. of course. 
Yeah. We did speak about um, the loss of trust during that time in safety inside and outside, in language and narrative. Um, I wanted to know what it was like, we did touch on it before, to write in that space because, as you said, it was also lockdown. Um, and I wondered if that's also part of the decision to include so much, um, so many other references throughout the book to help convey and process what you want. There's poetry, there's analytical writings of fiction and nonfiction. You cite articles of events that have happened previously. Um, and I wanted to know what you were reading outside of the books you referenced during that time. I know they're books probably that you've always been reading, but were there new things um, that you were reading and what that process of reading was like during that time? So for me, citation is a feminist practice and making an intertextual web of connections is part of um, really part of what characterizes how I work. Um, you can see it in We That Are Young as well. It's a real web of different texts all pulled mm -hmm. together. It's based on King Lear for a start. Mm -hmm. um, and I was reading um, and I wanted to kind of take this grief and test it out against the women writers and other writers, black women writers, South Asian women writers, and other writers like Faiz and Rumi and these poets of revolution, um, and Aga Shahid Ali, um, who have done this work already in their own context to see if this specific trauma terror event could be held in the way they've understood structural violence. There's so much writing about 9-11, there's mm. so much writing about prison, um, abolition, da, da, da. There's fiction about terrorism, there's fiction about prison and police. And so I need to take this real life, completely preventable tragedy to those places where I've always trusted for answers. Mm. Because we, we are led to believe that fiction causes empathy and reading poetry can help us and so on. Um, in terms of new reading at the time, um, I, I trained as a theologian as an undergraduate and then, you know, worked as a journalist and advocate in minority rights for about 10 years covering Iraq. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, went back into university at 30 three to do my MA in creative writing and then the PhD which produced We That Are Young and now I'm an academic right I work in an academic context teaching creative writing so I didn't do kind of sociological reading that you might have if you had done you know political science or something so for me um I had to catch up a bit with some of the thinking around what ungrievability is, and this is Judith Butler's construction, which I was aware of in my periphery, but mm -hmm. then this really brought this into focus, how to think about the lives that people in the, that in the state considers disposable. Mm -hmm. Where, when we have that sense of our safety is predicated on others' oppression, what does that actually mean in the UK context? So I, I was doing a lot of reading around that. Mm -hmm. um, there are some in, incredible British Muslim writers working on Islamophobia and structural Islamophobia in the UK today. Torsi Khan, Suhaima Mansour Khan, and all these people who are doing the sociological thinking, political thinking, putting together the blocks of things that say 
this makes a whole picture. What do you expect to happen here? Mm. That's mm. the question they're asking. Mm. It's not going to be that millions of Muslims in Britain are going to become violent. So there's there's an argument being made for how the structures of the state like prevent mm. and you know, stop and search and so on, are being expanded and narrativized to, mm. to further undermine those communities and get inside there insidiously through cultural organization, through media messaging and, and turning communities into self-policing and the wider community into suspicious minds of, you know, the guys on a train with a backpack, boom, mm. Mm. you know. And that reading really allowed me to think about turning the argument inside out and saying, okay, but some young minds will be lost to that terror and then fall down the rabbit hole of indignity into mm -hmm. a place that's going to give them that sense of community back. It's hateful ideology. Mm -hmm. And that's true of white fascists too. Mm -hmm. Because what we're not thinking enough clearly about in the public domain is the internet and the algorithm and the, the, the depth of the addiction to that mm. that can result in you know filling a void mm. um, and so for me that kind of that kind of reading was what I was doing um, mm -hmm. on the outside of the of the book to give me that sense of you know what the political social construct was because I'm very very familiar with the literary stuff so the three things that you wanted to help make sense of, one of them, the first one, um, was critical reception of the book, which we talked about earlier before we started recording. Um, you said that it was interesting and moving, that reception is an important and underthought through part of the process for writers since the energy rightly goes into actually writing the book and we hope for the best, often forgetting the market exists. So there's two things there. One, that you've had a really good response I know in terms of readership in terms of your reader as well as people getting in touch with you um, as you said before because you've also given people space to speak about their proximity to grief and to violence but there's also another side of um, it in terms of mainstream media reaction to the book so I wondered if we could speak on both those things. Yeah, I mean, I've been so grateful for the Black and Asian women um, editors, places like Galdan, Bad Form, White Review, um, and other allies that have taken up this book. Uh, the London Review of Books has really supported me. Um, thoughtful readers who care about social justice and thoughtful editors, thank goodness, um, with with complex life experiences that they're bringing to their jobs. Mm and um, want to celebrate a piece of art about an awful thing that happened. Mm. Mm. Because this book isn't a terrorist event. It's no. a book about something that happened that I was involved in. Mm -hmm. So I you know, cannot stress enough that Grassroots is where this book is living finding readers finding support and it just means so much to me and um I think you know when writers are working on books we think we have to believe that our words are going to find outlets and 
you know, thousands of book get, books get published every year. So obviously none, they can't all be covered. They can't all be talked about. Mm. All, all sorts of important subjects that people need to know about. But the, we forget there's a market. Mm-hmm. And that market's extremely curated. Mm. It's capt- it is a capitalist market. Mm. And it includes all of the things that have to do that shape capitalism, including racism and Islamophobia. I once had a conversation with um, the Booker Prize novelist, Paul Beattie, who wrote mm. this amazing satire called Sell Out, which I'm, is like one of my top 10 books of all time. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you know, do you think publishing is racist? And he just looked me in the eye and he was like, it's an institution and an industry like any other. Mm. I mean, that guy is the oracle on this stuff. Mm. And he's fearless. Mm-hmm. So, you know... We have to understand that um, whole process in that mm-hmm. way. But we can't because otherwise we wouldn't write a word. You get that fear in your head that, oh, if I don't take out all the adjectives, then suddenly I'm <laughs> going to be called a flowery writer or an extravagant yes. writer. If I put in like one word that's unfamiliar to this one editor sitting in whatever mm-hmm. publishing house, then they're going to turn it down because they don't understand it. So therefore they think all their readers won't understand it. Mm-hmm. Forgetting that half their readers might be bilingual Mm. Mm. so so when reception happens it's always really interesting sociologically to me Mm -hmm. it's important because my work deals so much with structures to understand that structure Mm. um I'm not the first like person of color to say this and we are living in a moment where this conversation has been now really changing the publishing industry hopefully um making much more space for diverse voices and celebrating um the the huge achievements literary achievements of british talent of color Mm -hmm. um but for me like with this book because it's about something that touches so many nerves Mm. and in it i have placed in the structure of power, publishing, the literary world, cultures of production, ways of writing, um, prison, Cambridge University. You know, it's, you cannot expect to be hugged by a system that <laughs> yeah. tried to look in the eye. Mm. And that's what I found. So I was invited onto Women's Hour to speak about the book Um, It took me a few months to think through whether or not I should do that. And we gave them a lot of, you know, protections that were areas I didn't want to talk about because traumatic and so on. Mm. And that whole experience was one of suspicion and outrage. um, And in the room, um, you know, it was was questions like, lots of people will be outraged by this book. What do you have to say to that? And... Oh, wow. I know. Ian Aitchison, who I'm not really sure who he is, but I found out that he's like this right-wing commentator mm. who's quite responsible for prison, um, oh. use of CSE units in prisons and prison policy and stuff, criticising the organisation of mm. Learning Together, the programme, which is fine because he's got the perfect right to do that. But, mm. you know, it did have organisational problems but that really didn't have anything to do with the writers or the teachers of the programs mm-hmm. who were actually delivering the front line. Mm. So I was supposed to answer to his criticisms. And then there was this very weird moment where um, they asked me, 
something that the Guardian journalist had also asked me when I did that profile. Um, did you tell the families of Jack and Saskia that you were writing this book? And I found that question really tough because mm. for, for, the, for the months before that, um, we had discussed how um, David Merritt, Jack's father, is a really, really close friend now. And we've been talking a lot. We mm. talk all the time. Mm. He knew about the book from very early on um, and he supported it. He read the manuscript before it was published in the States. Mm -hmm. He's given me an endorsement for the UK book. Um, and the BBC producers knew that. And they also had the book in front of them with his name on the back. I mean, you know, <laughs> you don't make this stuff up and publish it. And yet they they pretended yeah. that they didn't know that mm. in the interview. And for someone who has been traumatised by this kind of who to trust, it, it, everything just melted in my brain. I just mm. had no control. I was so, I've never really... I suppose it was kind of like what the young what young people call a trigger, but I don't really like that terminology, obviously, in this context. But it really mm. sort of flipped something in my brain. I, I suddenly yeah. was just like, what is going on here? And I began to panic. I began to have mm. this fight or flight response. And after that, the whole thing just got more and more defensive and down went downhill. Yeah. So following that, um, kind of, and it felt like a kind of entrapment to me. Don't yeah. Know. I mean, it, so it sounds like, I mean, there's a very... <laughs> I, I've been through this with you as well for this podcast, but it, it's very easy to uh, choose what questions you ask and what not to ask and to be right. sensitive to the person you're speaking to. Right. Like, why not say, oh, I see that David Merritt's endorsed the book. Mm -hmm, How nice. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that relationship. Instead, mm -hmm. it was like, have you told the parents? And of course I have. You know mm -hmm. I have. We talked mm -hmm. about Dave coming on the show with me. What's going on here? I just couldn't yeah. understand it. So yeah. everything seemed to kind of melt down from there. And then we were taken into the green room afterwards to kind of have this like post-recording um, chat where they promised us we could see a cut or they said they'd see what they could do about us seeing a cut of this interview, mm. which isn't possible because it's against BBC policy, which we didn't know then. So clearly mm -hmm. that wasn't true. Yeah. And then the week went on because we had pre-recorded. It was supposed to go out the following Friday. The week went on. Um, my brilliant publicist and publisher supported me as I was kind of re-experiencing nightmares, re-experiencing sleeplessness and high, high anxiety um, because I wasn't sure how they were going to cut this thing and what was going to come out and how I was going to sound. Because I never want to sound offensive about this book that's taken mm. so much out of me and has been supported by so many people, including Jack's father, Dave. And eventually they promised us that we could see a, um, what's the word? Outline, like mm -hmm. a kind of summary of what they were going to put in the thing, just to reassure me. And then it didn't happen. Um, days went by. And then finally it got to Thursday, and the thing was supposed to go out on the Friday. We still hadn't heard anything. So I just thought, fuck this, it's not worth it. And I asked them not to broadcast it. Oh, wow. So we pulled it. Wow. Yeah, well, rightly so. I think <laughs> there's, I mean, it's shocking to hear that as well because there's definitely, um, we've touched on this in different ways, but there's gatekeepers and there, there's definitely narratives that are pushed forward and, 
it feels like such a shame going back to what we said before that you're giving a space for these things to be discussed and that that wasn't the option given to discuss this fairly and not um, with uh, alternative alternate motives of you know um, conversations about are, you know I can't answer for the failings of MI5 mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. I can't answer for the narratives of the prison and probation and prevent and all of the very experienced actors who are meant to be in charge here mm -hmm. I was a creative writing teacher who taught in a prison right. yeah so let's have some perspective Mm. Yeah. Cambridge University, which was supposed to provide a protective factor for Usman Khan, had no, absolutely no um, facility or understanding of how to do that. Mm. But all of those other people in those organisations mm -hmm. that I've mentioned were like, Cambridge University, oh, that's great, it'll be a protective factor. What was actually in place for that was, was you know, nothing really. Mm. or someone who should have been much more supported or wasn't trained to do that mm -hmm. so how am I meant to answer for all of this in a radio interview <laughs> where I've basically written a book about grief and collective yeah. probability and complex trauma and the root of which for me as I say in the book ironically is a curatorial and cultural silence about partition Mm. which deprives young people of knowledge and dignity on um, the authority of their own stories. And into that gap, race hate is, is just allowed to flood and it's mm. pushed to flood by, mm. our, by our government. Mm. So, yeah, it was hard work. And it wasn't the first time that's happened. You know, I did a profile in The Guardian in November um, and it was really... It's just such an incredible experience to have that platform for for something. Mm -hmm. I, I never had that kind of platform for my work before and that kind of attention. So went into it with a real kind of sense that something positive could be made. Mm. And um, we had we had asked them to show us the piece and they had agreed um, to show us everything except for the final actual write-up, which is fine. So we had approvals over the headline, the stand first, the photographs and the captions. We had to change everything. Wow. Yeah. So you had to change like, everything from yeah, what we, they had to We had to kind of come to agreements on changing words for everything. Wow. So I think their first type, their first headline was something like, she taught him in prison, he committed a terrorist attack. Could she have done more? Oh, no. Oh, no. That's terrible. I'm a professor. That's so much weight on you. That's terrible. It's risky. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's oh, putting I'm... me in the front line of something because yeah. I've written a book about grieving and structural complicities mm. in racist, you know, this isn't, this isn't okay. Mm. It's fucking dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, why is it we have the bandwidth to listen to Arundhati Roy criticise the genocidal maniacs in India who are causing the deaths of many, many millions of Muslims? Mm. But we haven't got 
the bandwidth to talk about how society fails people, how prison is failing people, and how mm. my five in the home office is ca- causing environments of failures and narratives of white saviorism that come into that, mm. which were at, which were part of this what happened here. Mm. Through the voice of someone like me who was born here and I was very close to it. Mm. Can't we do that? I mean, you and I are doing it. Mm. Yeah. So in that, how do you, I mean, I can understand it would be hard to trust everyone that approaches you on different platforms, different um, publications. How do you strike a balance of speaking about it with the right context and the right person how do you navigate that now because you've obviously had good examples and good um, instances where you've spoken to people you trust I I watched an interview with the Elliott Bay Book Company is it which was you know I think that felt like a safe space for you and I can imagine what that feels like in contrast, or I can't imagine, but in contrast to seeing a headline like that. So how do you manage that now? Um, I did my, I mean, yeah, I like, I'm lucky because, because I published the book first in the States mm-hmm. and um, their, their knowledge of um, their, their critical thinking about abolition and prison abolition and violence, obviously it's like way more advanced because of the work mm. of the feminists and civil rights movement. Um, and the books, the booksellers in the US, like Elliott Bay Book Company and um, the Seminary Co-op in Chicago and um, other places, including um, Point Reyes Books, a small bookshop up in California, um, Point Reyes, beautiful little landscape up there, wild. And North Atlantic, it's Atlantic. My job is terrible. Anyway, um, booksellers have really got behind this book because they know their communities and they know what's important to those communities is trying to make a better world when they Mm. choose to promote what books they're going to put in front of readers. And it's the same in London with the LRB, you know, Dawn Marylebone, places where I've gone around London, I've seen Aftermath in the window or wherever because Mm. people read these people read sensitively and widely mm. I'm not saying and they and they and they're a different kind of industry to the media mainstream media how do I pick how do I pick who I talk yes. to you know you just hope for the best yeah and, and you still have trust that somehow the book will speak for itself and people mm. will approach it and stand next to it not against mm. it mm. yeah hold it responsible in some way I was teaching a workshop on Saturday for 18 to 21 year olds and the shadow of Manchester is always in a room um a very different kind of event but Mm. you know with links into Britain and British South Asian communities Mm -hmm. people are doing complex thinking about how not to make this worse Mm. young people are Mm. because they don't want to go through that again of course yeah. So our media is failing us, and our intercultural industries might be too. Like the Carmen Ashanti book, Home Fire, won the Women's Prize. 
but a book about an actual thing like this can't be talked about. Mm. So mm. what is our reliance on fiction there? Why is that safer? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. What's the role of fiction in creating these narratives and undoing them? That's something that as a fiction writer, first and foremost, I, I have to think about. Mm. Mm. I want to find right I want to find people like you um and other podcasters and interviewers and reviewers and interlocutors who have that bandwidth and can understand the complexity of these things and want to think through them together. Mm-hmm. Not just come at me with how dare you. The second thing I wanted to speak to you about or that you wanted to help make sense of was the timing in which you chose to write um, through this. In the Guardian article, you were quoted as saying, sometimes stories choose us. There's no other way through this time than to try to work out in my own mind how I sat inside the story and where I could say something about what I saw and what I know about this event and the structural harms and systemic failures that contributed to it. Um, could you speak a little on that choice that you made, obviously, to write in that time? Um, that quote came out of a question that I was asked in a very... I don't know what the word is... Um, interrogatory manner, mm-hmm. um, which was, why did you stay silent about this for so long? Okay. As if I had hidden my own involvement for yeah. two years until yeah. I written a book which isn't true no lots of people knew I was involved of course everyone knew I was involved it wasn't Mm -hmm. hidden from the media in any way Um, my name was in all of the um, learning together materials course materials that you know I was called to give evidence in the inquest but um to give a statement but I wasn't called to actually give evidence it wasn't hidden in any way it just Mm. wasn't found by Mm -hmm. people who are in the media And my response to that kind of interrogatory question is to try to diffuse the idea again that somehow I was responsible Mm -hmm. or or this book is doing the same work again. Um, And in in many ways, what I tried to say then was in that that moment of being put on the spot in a way that I wasn't Mm. prepared for, found very difficult was in December just after Jack died there was an intensity in Cambridge of grieving national media um, I I was looking after a group of students who had, who had come into the prison with me and been with me and Jack the day before he died. Um, there was an investigation in Jesus College where I was then attached to um, look into my involvement, which none of the other trainers or teachers who worked for Learning Together underwent anywhere mm-hmm. else in the university. It was really very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. and I was alone my partner was away for work and at the same time I just had so I, I wasn't sleeping obviously you know mm. we were traumatized mm. so I had nothing really except for my own um 
the regularization of my own habits, which is to write. Mm-hmm. And I started to document the complexity of the grief I could feel happening around me, which I'd never experienced, sort of the what I spoke about earlier, the different ways in which an, an event like this makes a national tragedy. Mm. Because it was two weeks before the general election. Um, and then I had to move house because I was supposed to be starting my job and that was all already in process from September mm. 2019. Um, and at the same time, I was scheduled to go to India and to America for other types of work, so book work and then, you know, to commemorate Sonny Mehta, the editor mm. of my book in America, who had died in December, that on December 30th in 2019. This memorial service was taking place in New York and I had some work in New York at the same time, so I was able to go. Um, I, had, I had all these notes with me. Mm-hmm. Um, an email dropped into my inbox from Adam Levy at Transit Books around February saying, we're about to launch the Undelivered Lecture series. He had been in touch with me in 2018 to ask me to contribute to it. And I said no, because even though I'm teaching in prison, I don't know what I want to say about that yet. Mm. I will say something at some point. And then suddenly mm-hmm. this email drops in saying, I'm checking in again to see if you want to contribute to the series. And he didn't know what I was working on or that I had been involved in mm. um, what happened. Mm. And, and I just sent him my pages of notes. Um, and I got an email back, you know, three days later saying, here's a contract, so it's right for this. Mm-hmm. And he was amazing, you know, him and Ashley are amazing because they have the series which has the bandwidth to allow writers to think through things in mm. strange forms in short, shorter ways in the whole book. And I just, because I had that voter confidence that what I was doing could be held by an editor that I trusted, already doing radical work, um, I was able to start putting my mind, my creative brain to this when I got back from New York. Mm. Um, while I was in New York, I also had dinner with Gina, who I spoke about earlier as well. And she was basically like, you're the only person who can do this, you've got to do it. Mm. Mm. So I felt like I was already building a community and a network of people who would be mm-hmm. who would be able to allow me to to stay safe. Mm. Um, and I started writing because I had to. There was no one around. Mm. There was no other way to think through. Otherwise, you go mad, like in your own head, you know. Mm. How can I do this when two two people two young people were killed? How can I do this when I don't want to speak for those who are still incarcerated, who can't speak for themselves? How can I do this when this event was so awful and so completely extreme? Mm. Someone I knew killed someone I knew and that he knew mm. in a horribly violent way in this very public way, it's an aberrative event, but it's very extremity had to be addressed because mm. it doesn't make sense otherwise. Yeah. So all of these questions are going around in my mind and it becomes a puzzle craft. Mm. I just had to work out on the page. Yeah. Um, and then the inquest happened a year later. So because of the pandemic, the inquest was delayed 
all of 2020, I was kind of working on different sections of the book. And then finally we got through the inquest in January to April, 2021. And um, the stuff that came out of that was just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Just couldn't believe what I was reading half the time because I read the transcripts. I'm, I'm in Newcastle, wasn't able to go to London. Mm. Um, it was closed anyway a lot of it was done online and certain people had links to it so they could watch mm-hmm. and I was getting the transcripts because they're in the public domain you know they're published on government website mm-hmm. anyone can read them mm. um, reading every day to see what was being said because I needed to understand and just there's, there's a chapter in the book which is which is made of statements from the inquest mm-hmm. which we just I just was like wait what how is that possible that you thought that Mm. because he was doing creative writing, he was somehow rehabilitated Mm. Mm. because it was Cambridge university. You thought that it would be, it was wonderful. Mm. What, what, like you're, how the forensic psychologist, how could you not have listened to that person's report? Mm. How was this person allowed to be sent from category A high risk, and himself categorised as high risk, one of the very, very most high risk categorizations that a human can have in this country, mm. straight into a community. Mm-hmm. It's very rare, if completely, completely unique. Mm. Usually someone in category A prison will get decategorized until they reach D. Mm-hmm. A kind of prison which is more open, rehabilitative, and so on. So they get through this downgrade system, this man Khan was released straight into a community where he was on 37 license conditions or something, which included don't go on a train, don't get Mm. a job, internet Mm. monitor, da-da-da-da-da. What was he doing all day? Playing Xbox and going crazy. Mm. How is that possible? I mean, my mind just fragments. Yeah. Yeah, and you have also spoken about how fiction operates in that way, these questions that you've just asked of how how can um, partaking in a course, in a creative writing course, how can being a course associated with Cambridge, it's really interesting that that's also a, something that you brought up and it, it made me look at the book in a very different way but also the process and the events that led up to it um, was framed really interestingly when I heard that how fiction operates on us and on um, this particular event as well. Yeah, I'm really interested in these questions and these myths and of like fiction and its redemptive qualities Mm. because that's narrative structure. That's the Mm -hmm. idea that one can come from nothing and end up successful <laughs> you know that's mm. like the hero journey right yeah, yeah. It's a fundamental building block of narrative yeah. which I saw at work in some of these arguments and myths mm. through this lens of you know what else is there from nothing terrorist to Cambridge University great writing mm. but what else was there was yeah. there social work care was there understanding was there and I'm not talking, I'm not saying that someone who committed this horrible violence deserved those things because mm. that's really difficult morally for people to get their heads around. Mm-hmm. Just as it is that people on long and life sentences who have often committed awful violence and crime um, 
deserve creative writing teaching in prison you know people struggle with that and I understand that because our governments have systematically taken arts access out of our communities mm. over decades of austerity in the hostile environment if, our, if we can't get them at young age why should some guy who's in prison mm. when he's mm. committed horrible crime but there's a link between the two things from the, from the young age to the prison mm. Yeah. Wow. And if you worked across that world, which I have from school-aged kids in socioeconomically deprived areas, right through to high security prison, you can see it. Mm. How many people who are in that situation in prison were excluded from school? Mm -hmm. So many disproportionate numbers. Mm. And how many of those are disproportionately from Black and Asian communities? So many. Mm. because of the increase in stop and search and the racism in the mm-hmm. justice system there's a link it's called the school to prison pipeline mm. um and i think you know as well i really want to say that like in the book i write that if i sound angry it's because i'm grieving mm. and i think that's really important like it's important to know that there's a real difference between anger and anguish and my work comes from that position of anguish mm-hmm because I don't want this kind of heartbreak for mm. swathes of our society and communities. I don't want another young man to be in Usman Khan who ends up shattering so many lives. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think that anguish led to writing and giving us this piece of work that hopefully opens up conversation and thinking and even what we're speaking about today, I mean... Often I feel like I don't know what to respond with because you just are opening my eyes up to things that I haven't considered and and, uh, connections that I haven't so easily made. So, um, again, thank you. I wanted to see if we could shift a little for the last thing you wanted to make sense of um, to talk a little about your publishing journey. Forgive me if any of what I say now is incorrect, but from what (laughs) I understand, um, your debut novel, which we have touched on, We That Are Young, took a while to find a publisher in the UK and then Galley Beggar Press, which has an excellent list of titles, published it. And in 2018, it went on to win the Desmond Elliott Prize for Literary Fiction Debut, which is one of the most prestigious awards for debut novelists. Um, I wondered what it felt like at that time um, before you found the right publisher and how it felt after winning that award. Not that those two things have to be connected in such a linear way, but it is a contrast of if correctly it took a while to find a publisher but then once it was published Mm. um that it was received so well can you speak a little about that yeah so um I wrote the book I wrote We That Are Young as part of my PhD in creative writing at Royal Holloway as a mature student so I was in my mid-30s and I finished Mm. it when I was 36 and then um it I had an I had an amazing agent who was convinced he was going to sell it and be a big splash debut and this and that And then, of course, it didn't sell and it took a really long time and a lot of rejections from mainstream presses in London um, going down over a couple of years. And I carried on with my life, you know, I carried on with my academic career um, because I had to work. And um, but the more I got rejections, the more I realized that it wasn't me, it was them. 
Mm-hmm. Because and it made me go back to the text over and over. And instead of becoming more standardized, I just got more me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it got more linguistically complex and playful. It became bigger, it became more ambitious. And I just was like, if I'm never going to publish this, I'm just going to make it what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And that attitude of like oh, fuck it, like that that's really important to me. Like yeah. books that say no to literature, as Alejandro Sambro says, and I quote him in Aftermath. Um, it's thrilling to be able to have that freedom to write mm. the way all of, with all of the fun that you bring to your own process mm-hmm. love that never want to feel like I have to stick it in some box that I can't fit into you know mm-hmm. um, and then um, I published this little novella called Kum Kum Malhotra as part of a prize with a volunteer press called Gatehouse Press. And um, what happened next? They took the manuscript, they're based in Norwich, and they took the manuscript of We That Are Young to the house of Sam and Ellie, who run Galley Beggar. Mm-hmm. And Andrew McDonald, who's who was at Gatehouse, he, he was like, You have to read this because it's amazing. Mm. And he's he literally gave it to them standing in their house. Um, and they loved it, so they published it. And that was, I was 40 by that point. Mm. Um, and, you know, we worked on the text for about a year to get it into shape. And that was a wonderful process. Um, when it came out, this, I got my first review in the Sunday Times, which was like a dream, mm-hmm. which it was, it was a big review. And it was just so wonderful to see someone who was responding to the book in that pla- on that platform it was amazing feeling mm. it was so amazing I had to go swimming because I had to get underwater <laughs> because I was so I like so it was so intense I was just like I've got to get under the water <laughs> and then after that Sonny Mehta saw that review because he happened to be in England that weekend mm-hmm. and he was packing his suitcase um he told me this story and <laughs> He was reading the Sunday Times and then he was looking at my face and the, there's a picture of me in, in the review. And he and then he realised that my agent had, because I had changed agents by this point as well, mm-hmm. um, had gone into, he had got he got my proof in his bag. So oh, he wow. read it on the plane, oh, yes. Wow. He fished it out of his suitcase and he read it on the plane and then by the time he landed in New York, he knew he was going to buy it for American market. Amazing. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Wow. When it came to it, you know, the Desmond Elliott Prize was the last prize that I was eligible for in the UK. Mm-hmm. So the, but there's a cycle of a year oh, where wow. books go into prize prize yeah. cycles, right? And I I had been sort of long listed for the folio, but mm-hmm. not shortlisted, which is you know really everyone every year you see this kind of little kind of around folio prize year people who are like oh. Never mind. And you know what it's about. And other prizes, you know, no one expects to get literary prizes. It's a massive lottery. Yeah. Um, so when I got onto the Desmond Elliott Prize shortlist, and it was actually my 41st birthday. It was announced on April 26th. And I was just like, wow, this is cool, you know. Mm. And then I won. And it was wonderful. We just had a wonderful evening celebrating I got so much appreciation from so many people. Mm. Um, and it felt like a real pinnacle. 
to a long, 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 long journey. Yeah. Um, during that time before it was shown to Galley Beggar Press, um, was it just something that your agent just kept going with and you kept going with? Was there a point where you wanted to say, okay, let's move on or your agent? Yeah, he kept going for a really long time. Mm. I think about two years. Okay. And some people saw it twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just sort of, the relationship, um, I think we just it just went quiet. Like he had loads of other books he was selling and mm. I had a job and... I was working on it on my in my own time. And you can't keep asking someone to keep on doing that work and they've exhausted yeah. all their possibilities. Mm-hmm. So the relationship just went dormant for a while. And then when I managed to sell it, um, it was a rights issue because that particular agency um, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to sell. I think it was something to do with world rights. Like small presses often... Um, will buy world rights for books because that's how they survive, mm. you know? Sense. Yeah, yeah. Which is fine, you know, small presses are the lifebloods of literary writing mm-hmm. in this country. It's absolutely incredible. So I'm, I'm involved with other stories in mm. the aftermath in the UK mm-hmm. as a contributing editor. And I feel like, you know, some of the most exciting work has come out of small presses in the last seven years, mm. since, I've, since I've been publishing um, so we parted ways with it. I parted ways with the agent and found mm-hmm. someone else who could represent my different rights for this book alongside Gary Bago. I normally end by asking guests what their favourite thing about being an author is, which I'd like to, but I'd additionally like to ask how you feel now on the other side of having written this book, um, on the other side of speaking to people about the book and choosing who you speak to are you able to find trust in language, trust in people? Are you able to f- enjoy writing again, reading again? I mean, you always enjoyed reading, but um, how are you doing? Thank you so much for asking that question because so few people in this dynamic actually do. Mm-hmm. And I think abolitionist practice is about care and solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I think criticism can be a part of that. Um, and publication and publicity can be part of that so really really appreciate it you know mm. I had this event at the LRB bookshop with Lola Olafemi amazing abolitionist black feminist thinker of the in the UK mm-hmm. and she's her book experiments in imagining otherwise is another one which everyone should read but the dynamic was so healing for me because mm. she gets it mm-hmm. and she understood how important it was to create an environment where the audience felt like they were safe, I was safe, we were making conversation about these complex things together. Mm. And, you know, I I think we've done that today too, which I really appreciate because that's where I begin to move on. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the book, the best things that have come out of it, you know, my friendship with Dave Merritt, um, my students... I taught um, from Cambridge University, all taking their next steps into work in, in social justice, in prison education. They haven't walked away. Mm. They've made, reinstated their commitments mm. um, post-graduation in a very tough climate to do mm-hmm. them, to carry on with this work. So that makes me hopeful. I'm still reading a huge amount, obviously. That's mm-hmm. what I do to relax. Yeah. Um, and writing again, yeah, yeah. I'm, writing new work that's great and 
What What is your favourite thing about writing or about being an author? It's just the, com- the it's it's the moment of communing between the brain and the page. Mm-hmm. It's just doing the writing. I I love it. I just find that silence, mm-hmm. complicity, that intimacy, totally thrilling and restorative. Even when I know what I'm writing is rubbish, I know that I'm putting something down that I'm going to come back to and mm-hmm. work with, like, as a maker. Mm-hmm. And such a privilege to have that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for being on this podcast and trusting me to talk to you about Aftermath. Um, as we said before, it's published by Transit Books in the US and and other stories in the UK. If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sarika Thanandra Tharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.